Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Garland Pepper Presents podcast today. My guest is Stephen Strasbaugh. Strasbaugh's in the house. In the house. For yeah. sure. Stephen, uh, and that actually fits because Stephen Strasbaugh is a DJ and he goes by the incredible kid and he DJs with his life partner, best friend, Anjali, and they do amazing musical mashups but their main focus is Indian music. And how do you say it? Bhangra? Bhangra. Bhangra. You got to say Bhangra. Bhangra. Yeah, Bang- I even, I, even I mutilated. I was not born speaking Punjabi. I didn't, you know, start encountering Punjabi words until I was almost 30. So, you know, I'm still doing my best. Aspirated syllables can be very tricky. So is Bhangra uh, mainly a, a Punjabi? It's a Punjabi harvest dance, a Punjabi folk dance that goes back, you know, 500 years or more just that we can document. And it's become somewhat of a um, you know, primary diasporic music within uh, the Indian community. So people that don't necessarily speak Punjabi will dance to Bhangra at different you know, dances and functions. And a lot of that has to do with when uh, India suffered partition in 1947 there were uh, Punjabis especially who were forced kind of all throughout the world to survive because, you know, their land was literally divided in half. Punjab means land of five rivers, but there's only two in India now and three in Pakistan. So this ancient land was split apart. So much death, so much destruction. And so many, many Punjabis went all around the world. And a lot of them ended up in England and ended up uh, living in Afro-Caribbean communities in England and started picking up on the reggae and on the developing hip hop and on the house music and then started taking their folk rhythms and combining it with beats in a way that wasn't necessarily happening with any other Indian diasporic music on the same level. And so it became kind of the heavy beat soundtrack to the diaspora. Interesting. Interesting. So and I hope I got most of that right. So the Punjabis are, are mainly northern Indians. Uh, North, Northwest India yeah, and Pakistan now, for sure. Pakistan, yeah. So, yeah, I, I and, and mainly with a Sikh religion. Well, you know, there's lots of Hindu Punjabis and uh, Muslim Punjabis and Christian Punjabis. And so the Sikh Punjabis, they're very visible. I mean, obviously, yeah. they're, they're required to wear the turbans uh, and keep their hair uncut. So they're very noticeable. But they're Punjabis of every religious background. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that. And that's the thing about India, isn't it? It was. I mean, more and more forces like uh, Prime Minister Modi and the BJP party are trying to turn it into an ethno-nationalist state and trying to force out, you know, everyone except the Hindus. So it's it's kind of like Trumpism, but on the other side of the world. Uh-huh. Hindu-nationalism. Yeah. You know, and we think of these things. It's it's interesting. Uh, Chamath Palapatiya was talking about uh, Sri Lanka and the fall of Sri Lanka mm. and, and that it was a Buddhist country, you know, and that Buddhists are typically very um, kind of individualized in their in their approach to life, and that it's really hard to build a unified nation under that. Uh, when people have that sense, right? Mm-hmm. They're all on their own path, mm-hmm. and, and and he's you know he's kind of juxtaposed that with China, which is hyper unified. Mm-hmm. And he says America's kind of somewhere in the middle, where we have this high high individualism. And we have also kind of a collectivism. It's, it's, it's. I wish we had more collectivism here. 
Well, yes, and and of course with the right intentions. Mm. Collectivism with very, yes, very true, very true. With Collectivism right. with the the general welfare, you know, that would be what I would say. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right along with the old, you know, preamble to the Constitution, mm. promote the general welfare. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Provide the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. That kind of thing, right? For everyone, and not just the white male landowners. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where we got. That's where we got to get to, and we'll we'll get there. It's a long journey. It's a big boat big boat hard to turn <laughs> yeah we're experiencing that right now as we head towards you know climate apocalypse yeah and that's it's a thing i mean we get we get systems in place and, and we start to move in that way you know uh it it it's hard to turn those systems off once they start moving and, and you know especially when they have a support function they support whole communities you know well, like. and, 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 you know, no matter how pernicious the system is, if there are people benefiting from it at the top, then they'll do everything to maintain it. Well, yeah. So systems that aren't good for any of us, except a few people making money will stay in place because those people are benefiting and they have the power to maintain it. To right. Well, it. it benefits more than just the top. It benefits, like you think about the war machine. I mean, it benefits hundreds, if not a thousand communities across America in terms of goods being produced and created for it. It's the only way we've learned how to be successful or how to be prosperous as a society is to build bombs and sell them or use them. I mean, it's really right. sad. What if we built less stuff, but only what we need, and we had the time, had the time uh, dividend to, to take care of ourselves better? I mean, if we were taking our, our military budget and putting that into infrastructure or into you know community projects around the world, I mean, I think we'd have a lot more solidarity around the world if we were building schools instead of blowing them up, you know? Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Now let's get back to topic. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to happen the whole time, Mr. Pepper. <laughs> it could. It could happen. But let's go ahead and let's start out with you because you are the topic today. You are a guest, and and Garden Pepper uh, presents is is about your story. And so, what I'd like to hear today is a little bit of what formed you, um, what environment made uh, made you into who you are today. Um, you know how you grew up uh did you have siblings um your parents what was your relationship with them that kind of stuff you know i can talk all day every day about any subject so i'm keeping any of these limited is going to be somewhat tricky um I'm, I'm the eldest child of a family of four um and by four i mean four kids and uh, my mom and dad uh, are still together you know after 50 some years of marriage and it was a very you know, American traditional setup in that my dad was a doctor who worked very, very hard. And my mom was a homemaker who worked very, very hard, but it was very much the domestic sphere and the, you know, professional sphere. I rarely saw my father because he was so busy, like always on his page or always, you know, on call. He was an infectious disease doctor. And when the very first AIDS patients came in and, they, you know, they didn't even know they were AIDS patients, he ended up with that responsibility at the Portland VA. So, um, you know, that was that was part of my story was kind of witnessing that through, you know, his his job as a doctor. And my parents were very conservative Christians when I was born and through my, you know, early adolescence and stuff. And that played a huge role because I wasn't allowed to listen to music. So you can look you can look around and you can look at my life and where it went. And clearly I uh, rebelled against that, I guess you could say. Uh, they were, you know, despite the fact that my dad was like a 45 collector in the early rock and roll era, and my mom was always, you know, going to all the sock hops and dancing, and she knew all the dances. When it came time to have children, 
they were very afraid of the pernicious influence of modern youth music on our lives. And, you know, they thought they were being responsible by being like, you're not allowed to listen to the radio, you're not allowed to own music. You know, my father had a large classical, you know, record collection. Uh, we had a couple rock records. So like I was raised with two Beatles records, um, Abbey Road and the White Album, which are probably still two of my favorites. And, you know, we had a couple other rock records beyond that. But, you know, Fleetwood Mac rumors, you know, just some obvious ones, ABBA, right. Super Trooper. So there's a handful. I still remember them because, you know, they stood out like I was not. I found some of the classical records interesting because they had psychedelic covers and I was a little kid and I didn't know about psychedelic art. I can look back at them now and realize, oh, that was a psychedelic cover to some, you know, Stravinsky or whatever. But I wasn't drawn to the music. What I was drawn to were the few kind of rock and pop records that we had. And so starting in elementary school, I would sneak, you know, all I had was like a little tape recorder, but I'd find a way to like tape a friend's record or something like very crudely, just kind of holding it by the stereo. And then I would listen to it until the tape broke. And I taped the tape back together and then listened to it again until it broke. And I remember the first day I discovered MTV. It was funny because we had a little tiny black and white TV, but we had cable so my father could watch sports, you know, on, on the cable channels. So it was just funny that the combination of like we had a cable box that was probably bigger than the little black and white TV it sat on. But I remember the day I discovered MTV, my mom wasn't home. And I was like, well, you know, I was being a parliamentarian. I was like, well, they said I wasn't allowed to listen to music, but they never said I wasn't allowed to listen to MTV. So I pulled the, you know, the cassette recorder up and I just recorded, you know, as much of the, I could fit on my little 45 minute cassette or whatever. And then my mom came home and was instantly like, all right, turn that off. You're never watching MTV again. Like oh, that's a new, that's a new rule, no MTV. But I had my little cassette. And so I played it over and over and over until, you know, hiding, cause I lived in a basement room, like almost all my childhood homes, I had kind of a basement room. So I was able to have somewhat of a separate life where they didn't really know what was going on in the upstairs world. Mm. And so, I would listen, you know, in the corner of my little basement room to this cassette. And I remember there was like Joan Jett, I Love Rock and Roll and a, a meatloaf song. Like you took the words right out of my mouth and, you know, a handful of kind of early 80s MTV things. And so from that little beginning, you know, I just kind of went crazy. Like I wasn't allowed to buy music until my freshman year, maybe like halfway through my freshman year in high school. And I just went nuts from there on out, just sort of getting as, my hands on as much as possible. And even before I was allowed to listen to music, my friends were the punks and the skaters. And so I would manage to get second or third generation dubs of different punk and hardcore records. And so, you know, I would either sneak a little bit of top 40 because you could, you know, if you could just get a radio. And at one point there was like a contractor at our house that had left a radio. And so I, you know, kept it in my little basement room and would, you know, tune it and listen to whatever stations I could get. But very quickly I realized that the music that was presented to us, you know, through the radio or whatever was boring. And so I started learning classic rock and in sort of the that canon and then just kept branching and branching and branching out from there, trying to discover new and different music. Uh, really caught you. So there's this concept in, a, in electronics called potential energy. And basically what happened is your parents built up a huge mass of potential energy. <laughs> by telling you no, they built basically a dam and and the water was there regardless. And so it just flooded in a torrent of just musical appreciation. And this is just one of my rooms of music. I mean, I've got rooms of records and CDs. It's completely out of hand. And I even more or less stopped collecting decades ago because I found it's really easy to acquire more music than you can ever listen to. 
So when I say I stopped collecting decades ago, that doesn't mean that I don't still buy hundreds and hundreds of pieces of music every year, but I'm not looking to bulk up just to bulk up. Like there was a period of time where I'd get my hands on anything that looked interesting. And, you know, after having just even hundreds of records, I realized, when am I ever going to listen to all these? When do I have the time, you know? And now it's just, I mean, there's no way I could even begin to touch. So it'll be like, I'll have a very particular interest. And then I'll think, okay, I'm going to get something. Like I've been recording, I'm a, I have a regular radio show on KBOO Community Radio, but I've also been recording a lot of specials for them recently. And so for instance, recently I've recorded it, but it hasn't yet been broadcast a uh, Fastback special, the uh, Seattle punk band. And so, you know, I had a lot of their stuff, but I didn't have everything. So I was like, all right, I want to make sure I have their complete discography before I start this special. So it'll be very focused purchasing like that because I used to just go to garage sales and just buy every box that looked interesting. And very quickly, I realized you, you're just drowning in it and you can't focus. You can't absorb it way too much. Jeez. So you, you grew up, you're in rock and roll. Did you ever get it? And you got into punk? Yeah, punk and hardcore. Yeah, that was like early, mid, early, mid 80s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then hip hop when hip hop came out and we or at least when we started hearing it on the West Coast through stuff like Beastie Boys, LL Cool J, Run DMC, those kind of early bands. Yeah. Did hip hop flip you? Um, I the first hip hop that super spoke to me was the Beastie Boys because stuff like, you know, the stuff that we would hear like LL Cool J, you know, I'm bad. And I'm just like I wasn't into that macho posturing. And so much of, of the hip hop that we were being exposed to was just I'm the biggest, I'm the baddest, which didn't appeal yeah, yeah. to me. And then the Beastie Boys were like, we're a bunch of goofy white kids riffing on goofy white kids shit. And so that I super responded to it, listened to that first License to Ill album to death before it was even really on the radio too much and was kind of bored by it. By the time it really hit society and all the kids in high school were listening to it, I was kind of like, oh, that's what you guys are listening to now. Um, but, you know, I formed a, a makeshift group called the Ganglin Guys. And so me and my friends were like the makeshift Beastie Boys. And we were all into uh, this chapstick called Savex. And so we would rap about savex <laughs> that was one of our things uh you know we got savex on our lips always get between the girlies hips like just ridiculous stuff like that and and then i discovered the true art like eric b and rakim um and uh public enemy de la soul tribe called so yeah hip-hop was a definite thread but then at the same time i was listening to tons of alternative rock um you know, UK stuff was really big for me in the 80s, like New Order, The Cure, Susie and the Banshees, Depeche Mode, The Smiths, and then, you know, college rock stuff like The Pixies and, um, you know, yeah, just kind of that whole world of college rock. So I was just absorbing and getting, you know, then discovering jazz and free jazz and out jazz and then discovering Fela Kuti and Jamaican music and African music and just constantly trying to broaden, broaden, broaden. Because, yeah, yeah there, there was that potential energy that was insatiable. Do you go through favorite albums? Do you have, like, certain albums like uh, it, that they grab you and you hold on to them for a while that you just have to immerse into? That was, a, to be totally honest, that was a pre-DJ thing um, because I was a huge, like, music collecting led to DJing. So I was a huge music collector and obsessive long before I ever, you know, started DJing for people. So... Um, like when I think about like different Jesus and Mary Chain albums, like when Jesus and Mary Chain would drop an album, I would just obsessively listen to it. Uh, they're like my favorite cheesy band. You know, they're one of those bands where I'm like, they're ridiculous and I love them. My Bloody Valentine, huge, huge era for me. You know, I just listened to them to death. When the first Built to Spill album came out, I was already a Tree People fan. And then There's Nothing Wrong with Love came out. I listened to that to death. 
I was a huge Mary Timoney fan from her early days in Autoclave. And so when the second Helium album, maybe the first full length, The Dirt of Luck came out, like I just listened to that obsessively. The Rondells, uh, there were certain bands that, yeah, I would just listen, listen, listen. And one of the things about DJing is, at least for me, that largely stopped. I'm just constantly trying to absorb new music. And so just sitting with one album almost never happens. Right. And all the genres that I'm known for and that I play for people are only available in a digital form these days. They're only available as MP3s. They're not produced in any physical form. And that's been true for a very long time now, which has been hard for a record collector to, like when I started DJing, it was strictly vinyl, you know? Yeah. And then the music forced me to change they stopped making vinyl it was like i guess i have to start playing cds then they stopped making cds it was like i guess i have to start playing mp3s and those weren't decisions i was happy about it was just the form the music industry took mm -hmm. and so now most of the music i listen to is in the form of digital singles albums are very rare in the genres i listen to and because i don't want to get i always want to be excited when i'm djing like i don't like to play something where i'm like i'm bored mm -hmm. so as a result anything that i think i'm going to dj with I'll often listen to it and be like, oh, it's hot. And then I make sure not to listen to it unless I'm performing for people. So I'm not, so I'm excited to hear it. I'm not bored when I go, oh, I've been listening to this a lot at home. I'm bored, you know? Right, right. And that's what happens when you start editing stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. You go back and forth, back and forth. You're like, I'm tired of my voice. I'm tired of everything that we thought was brilliant, you know? And then you're like, is it even brilliant? Maybe we suck. Maybe this way I feel after the 70th time is the way everybody's going to feel the first time. I don't know. And then you put it out there and you don't know. You still don't know. <laughs> well, that's one of the advantages of live radio is that you just do it and there's like, oh, that was it. Like, I'm out, you know? And, yeah. and in pandemic, I've been continuing to do my weekly KVU show, but pre-recording it. And for the first, I mean, I've been doing that show. On, sorry? 10 o'clock on Thursdays? What? 10 o'clock on Tuesdays, 10 p.m. to midnight, a show called Cubby Cushy Cubby Cush with those aspirated syllables. And Anjali and I started that in January of 2006. Kabu actually dragged us on. I'd always been interested in having a, a community radio show, but it seemed to me like you have to volunteer for years and like slowly, 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 then maybe one day like you get a show at 3 a.m. or something. And I was like, well, I want to be on community radio, but I don't want to jump through all those hoops. And I'd been on, I had been on college radio, KWVA down in Eugene. And, and that was just, I knew everybody involved. I just kind of waltzed into it. They were just like, Hey, get on the air. And I'm like, yeah, sounds good. Um, just from being a music obsessive, you know, cause I wasn't a DJ, I guess technically that was my start as a DJ was college radio. Um, but KBU, uh, several of the staff members were coming to Anjali and my parties in Portland and they were like, wow, your music's so cool. We need to have it on the air. And so they literally just sort of like stuck us in the studio and said, here, here's your show. And we're like, okay. Um, which is not how it works for most KBU DJs, uh, but it was very fortunate for us. So that was in 2006. And then Anjali retired in 2000, end of 2017. By 2018, it was my own show that she sort of said, you know, with her blessings, like I'm, I put in 12 years, it's you now, you know, you, do, you keep doing the show if you're interested. Um, I think it was leading somewhere. Oh yeah, it was always live radio. So show up, make a bunch of mistakes, you know, say things wrong, and then you're done after two hours. And right. in pandemic, I've been, and to this day, I've been pre-recording every episode. And then that can 
really drag on because it's like, well, I don't know if I like that mic break very much. Or I said that album was 1984 and it was 1983. Or, you know what I mean? Like right. going back and correcting the mistakes or like, oh, you know, I mean, I don't tend to mess with the music too much, but every once in a while there might be a transition that's so bad. I'm like, oh, I need to kind of finesse that a little bit. Uh, but especially with the mic breaks, it's like, oh, I said, um, you know, I said I'm um, too many times. Like, I want to cut some of those ums out. Or, right. And so I'm a little intimidated about going back to the live radio where I have to get it right the first time and I can't make any mistakes, or at least that's in my head, you know? Yeah, well, don't let that be in your head because <laughs> you've been making mistakes for 12 years and <laughs> rolling with it. And what really matters is is the music, you know, when you're doing your shows. That's how I feel about it. It's odd, you know. I've I've caught it a couple times, and I think both times has been coming back from the airport after picking somebody oh, up. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Typically not up at ten o'clock on Tuesday night. Right. At least most I'll... people aren't. I mean, <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, you, you guys will have a. You can just throw on your albums you want to listen to. Put your mic on. Walk away. Go make breakfast. Come back, and then, you know, invite some people up on the stage. Mute them, and then. Just build an audience, dude. I think you guys could build a, a huge audience on Clubhouse, actually, over time. I mean, there, so yeah. There's evening like meditation rooms that just do music, and you know they got fifty, hundred people in them sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and so there's just music rooms. Um, yeah, I think it might be something for you guys to try out. I mean, I have no experience with Clubhouse. We we took a huge jump into live streaming when the pandemic started because. Yeah. Anjali has been a full-time DJ more or less since 2004. I held on to a part-time job at Powell's Books because I wanted a little bit of stability in the DJ life, which otherwise doesn't exist. And I finally quit that job in 2012 and have been full-time DJ since then. And so when pandemic hit, it was catastrophe because as DJs, we barely live, you know, paycheck to paycheck, gig to gig. And all of a sudden it was like, all gigs are canceled for infinity. Like, we don't know when you're gonna get them back. You know, people were talking a four-year timeline and so when you're barely surviving and then there's a complete and total cessation of all your income immediately for the indefinite future, it's like, and you can't just go out and get a job because there are no jobs because the whole economy is shut down. It was a terrifying period. So it forced us into live streaming. And early on, we realized Facebook would mute your stream if you had copyrighted music in it. YouTube would mute your stream. Instagram would mute your stream. And they would even go so far as to boot you off the platforms. And we'd worked really hard to establish social media platforms to help promote you know, what we do. So we discover, oh, Twitch is kind of just through the shadiness of Jeff Bezos scooting, sorry, skirting copyright laws and just letting the DJs play mm-hmm. and then only muting the streams afterwards. So there's a real difference between trying to DJ for people and all of a sudden you're silent and then being able to DJ for people the whole time and then afterwards the archive is silent. Well, whatever. People got to hear you the whole time. So, or broadcasted. So, I'm noticing that people are playing whatever they want on Clubhouse uh, because there's uh, they're not being recorded. I think mm. so it's just happening. It's gone. Gotcha. You know? No archives. Yeah, yeah, it's. I mean, we're not luddites, but we're not like we're dragged kicking and screaming to every new technological thing we have to work with. And so learning how to live stream, we'd never gone live in our lives in any capacity. So learning how to live stream, learning how to make the music sound good, learning how to get the video to look good. It was such a long, stressful, difficult process. Um, And 
you know, that was a year we did, we, we did 64 weekends of live streaming. Uh, we were really dedicated. We only missed three in the entirety of the you know first 15 months of pandemic because of technical issues. Uh, like one time when we, our power was out for six days when we were iced in in the ice storm. So we were committed. Like there had to be something really serious to keep us from that. And, you know, at the beginning, we would have people from the East Coast tuning in and people from London tuning in and people from India tuning in. And in our 20 years as professional DJs, we're aware of how much our career has been limited by being based in Portland. Because people would do a fraction of what we accomplished in Portland, but do it in New York or LA and just get worshipped and celebrated, you know, by right. the media. Right. And it'd be kind of like, wait a minute, we, we've been doing that for 15 years on a much larger scale, but, but we don't exist because we're in Portland. Right. And so whenever we read histories of, you know, the genres that we've been involved in or this, you know, kind of the larger, like the global base scene or the Daisy party scene, we're written out of every history because we live in Portland. So a party in New York that maybe used to get 100 people would be celebrated as like they started it all. And we were like, well, we were doing the same kind of thing, but getting three to 400 people 10 years earlier. We don't exist. We're from Portland. And so in the early live streaming era, it, you know, by that, I mean, early 2020, it felt like, hey, we have a potential to grow into this. You know, for the first time ever, we'll have a worldwide audience. Right. And for us, it just never panned out. You know, we developed well, a few that, fans in a few areas, but we never developed some massive international following. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't know that, because um, music's available everywhere. So what do you guys, your product isn't the music as much as it is the experience. Mm. You know, going into a room and people actually dress up for your shows. They they put on saris and, and, and they dress up nice. Some people. Or they dress this up all ranges. in Portland. So you're going to see everything plus a Santa Claus and a, and a, and a furry. Um, or but Santa Furry. Notice, like the people that followed you guys down here to 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 the bull party, they 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 got dressed up. And yeah, that was a that was a special event. That's usually not a typical part of our club events at all. Um, some people uh, choose to like uh, you know we've had wedding receptions at our night, so there will be people dressed up very fancy and lingos and saris and stuff, but. You know, we've always been opposed to dress codes. When we started throwing parties, it was really common to be like, oh, you have to look nice and all this. We hated that. You know, we came from the indie alternative underground grimy punk kind of world. And we were like, no, fuck dressless. You know, we hated that. Uh -huh. I was like, wear whatever you want. Yeah. And so some people like to really dress up, but if somebody just wants to be their, you know, their grungy or casual self, they're more than welcome on the dance floor. That's always been a central part of our aesthetic for throwing parties is no exclusionary, you know, elitist stuff like that. Let's talk about the first time we met. I, uh, I, I met you guys. So you were invited to the bull party. Um, Zia calls up and says, Hey, can I invite my friends, DJ and Jolly and incredible kid? And can they have a slot? And I was like, okay, yeah. You know, cause that's, that's the answer you give when you're, when you're throwing a big party and you just figure it out from there. And you opened up our Saturday and so it was a three-day, pretty much festival. Came in on Friday, uh, watched Zia's thing. We had our friends who were the belly dancers that were there, and then you guys did uh, the show the next morning, and all everybody came uh, dressed up in saris and just beautiful. And An Anjali was showing us how to do the different dances, mm. uh, the harvest dances and such. The native in uh, Punjabi dances uh, and it was fun because I was over there barbecuing and I'm running over and 
trying to get to the dances and then I'd run over barbecue some more. And I just remembered like when I, after, after it was all done and I, I met you guys and you had to leave like quickly thereafter because you had a show that evening. Yeah. Um, but I remember just the connection and you find these connections in life and they're explainable if you know what they are unexplainable if you don't but they are they are true heartfelt soul connections and i felt that with you and angeli the first time and we've remained friends over the internet mainly uh i would have to say in terms of actual time spent together probably less than two hours hmm. but but uh what you share and and i've been following everything that you guys do it, it's it's a confirmation of that first inclination that yeah this is this is spirit brother right here well, I mean, I absolutely I agree with you and feel the same way. And I'm sure you've experienced that you, there are people you've just brushed by for a much shorter period of time than that, but you'll never forget them. And you had a, you know, a very special moment with them or, yeah. and, and a feeling of connection that'll never leave, even if you never see that person again, you know? Yeah. yeah. There's a woman I saw from the train in Korea and I made up a whole story about her and I still remember her. You know, and it's all probably bullshit, but I don't know. There was a smile that she had as she was walking by and looked in at me and just smiled. And I went, that was just beautiful. I, you know, I remember once I was, you know, long ago in college and I was running up like some lecture room stairs and at the top of the stairs, these doors opened to this bright, bright, bright sunlight that was just shining through the windows. And there was a woman at the top of the stairs that just had the most beatific smile. And she just looked at me with this radiant smile as I walked into the sunshine. I'll never forget her, you know, like it was just one of those moments. Yeah, just seeing people at their beauty. I love that. Oh, so that that was it. And then randomly, you called me a week ago. Yep, true story. And I was in the middle of doing uh, what I do every morning, which is the daily gratitude uh, room. And I, I reached out to my other moderators and said, hey, I have to step away for a bit. And so I stepped away and uh, we chatted for, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. I and felt really blessed for that. I was so glad you decided to come on over. Blessed morning. It was so quiet and beautiful down at the skate park. Yeah, I should say I was I was there shredding. That's why I was that's why I was in the area skating yeah. the skate park. So let's talk about that a little bit. So you're exploring uh getting back into skating again. I'm more than exploring it. I've been back into skating since last fall and, and I just saw the chiropractor yesterday for my most recent calf injury. I started skateboarding in sixth grade. I had a roommate, uh, not a roommate, sorry, I had a kid that lived across the street, you know, neighbor across the street, and he's like, you got to get into skateboarding, and got me a skate, and I stuck with it, and stuck with it all through high school, but in, in high school in the 80s, there was so much anti-skateboarding, uh, you know, signs everywhere, no skateboarding, the cops would chase you, the rent-a-cops would chase you, and it became such a part of the activity, you know, running from the cops. And there's a certain thrill to that, like, yay, you know, if, as long as you're a white man, you don't have to worry about getting shot in the back of the head, which even that's changing these days. But, you know, I didn't have a fear that the police were going to kill me in the streets. Right. Um, you know, I was very privileged in that regard. And so I was like, oh, I'm just going to you know, run around and, and not let them catch me. It was really easy. Jump some fence, do whatever. But then it got to the point where it was like, uh, that's not why I got into skating. 
like I wanted to skate. And so it got very difficult to continue to skate. And then I went down to a school in University of Oregon in Eugene, and their anti-skateboarding rules were even more intense. And like you couldn't find a, a, a parking lot, you couldn't find anything that didn't have no skateboarding signs. And I remember my last push down there was like 92, 93. And the last night, five separate cops and rent-a-cops chased me and my roommate. And my roommate got busted. They grabbed him and they caught him with a joint, which fortunately they didn't discover. Like he had it in his hat, which would have been a serious thing back then, not like today. Um, fortunately, they didn't, they didn't even notice the joint in his hat. So he got off okay. But I didn't know that when they caught him. I was just running like, no, they got him. And I, you know, at the end of that night, I was just like, I'm just trying to skate. I'm like, I, you know, I'm, I'm too old to be running from the police all the time. And then in the mid to, let's see, like 96, 97, I had some friends. I'd been skating at Burnside since, you know, they built it around 1991. But vert skating, transition skating, that kind of thing was all new to me. I was just a street skater. And so in the, you know, 96, 97, a couple of friends of mine were like, you should come to Burnside and learn how to skate Burnside. And I had a re renewed interest, like, yeah, okay, let's do this. So I went down there one day, skating, skating, skated, you know, fell on the concrete, fell on the concrete, fell on the concrete. Woke up the next day all battered and bruised. Oh, I'm so excited. I can't wait to go down there. Oh, I'm up for four work. I'm going to race down there. Break my arm. Oh, no. Well, I'd never, as much as I was a typical daredevil kid who would just do any crazy, insane thing, I never really got hurt bad ever. I just lose skin, just lose pieces of skin here and there. Yeah, yeah. So to be at the, you know, in my mid 20s and break a bone and not, it wasn't even dramatic. I'd been doing all this dramatic stuff at the park and I broke my bone on a super little weenie move. And it just made me feel so fragile. Like, oh, my bones are now, they're not young man's bones. Like these are, are bones of flint. And I didn't want to let people convince me I was too old. But when you wear a cast for two months and every time you encounter somebody and they go, oh, how'd you break it? You say skateboarding and they go, oh, you're too old. <laughs> that starts programming you over the months, you know? There was only one woman, a sociology professor at the University of Oregon, who talked about the kind of person you only meet once and you have a connection with. I don't remember her name, and I can picture her. Uh, I remember we smoked a joint down in uh, Ringler's Annex. <laughs> Back when you, and you're still not supposed to do that, but you know, you really weren't supposed to do that then, but somehow we got away from it. But we she was the only person that-, that in the day. Uh, She, uh, you know, she sees my cast and says, how'd you break it? And I say skateboarding. She goes, cool. You know, that was the only person in two months that had a positive response. And so at the other end of that, when I got the cast off, it wasn't that I thought I'm done skateboarding. I'm never skateboarding again. I just wasn't really ever going out. You know, I would just go out occasionally here and there. It just wasn't a thing anymore. And that period, you know, I'd go out occasionally with friends and, you know, do different sessions. But Far too much time passed uh, between 1997 and 2020, <laughs> uh, where I just wasn't serious about it. And then in 2020, you know, during pandemic, I started being like, well, I'm going to go out to these outdoor skate parks on nice days and skate. And despite how often and quickly I would get injured, it I just totally had the bug again and just, you know, been hooking up with different online groups of older skateboarders so we can compare injuries and notes about foam rolling at the park after your session or what stretches to do to make, you know? Yeah. So yeah, my most recent injury was coming from. I wake up with, Oh, why does this hurt? What's going on? What did I do? I at least always know I'm like, Oh, right. That's that fall. Or like, yeah, I remember when that didn't work out. That trick didn't quite pan out. <laughs> Yeah, so at least that helps me identify where all the pains come from. Yeah. Well, we don't heal as fast. So pads, pads, pads. 
Yep. And I'm there with you. It took me a long time, but now I'm all padded up for sure. Cause I just kept hurting myself and it was like, how bad do you want to hurt yourself in the future? Not anymore. So, you know, yeah, I hurt myself enough with the pads on. I don't need to, like, I look at my wrist guards and they're so battered. The, the plastic is just scraped, scraped, scraped. And every time I look at that and I'm, I know there've been at least four or five times I would have broken my wrist in the last couple of months if I didn't have them on. I yeah. just know it. You know? But it also allows you to try things that you might not try. It's true. It's made me braver about falling from taller things because I go, well, I got the pads on, you know. Yeah, I'll land. I know how it feels to land on these. It's not great, but it's not bad. Yeah, for sure. Pads, kids, wear your pads, wear your helmets. So you, you're, you've been a pot smoker for decades and decades. And you recently kind of stopped. Yeah, no, I'm still uh, very much going through THC withdrawal. I'm in like three weeks or so, still not sleeping through full nights. I um I only became a fan of marijuana because I was such a fan of LSD. And I had been straight edge until my second year in college, having been raised as a conservative Christian, even though all my friends were doing mushroom acid pot, certainly from the age of 13 or younger even though that was my circle and I was always hanging around those kids and I was always standing in the pot circles. I just was not, you know, that was not my thing. And it wasn't until I was a sophomore in college that I said, you should explore this area that you're so uh, judgmental about and so inexperienced. And I just think that's a bad combo to be judgmental and inexperienced about something. So I discovered that I loved LSD, you know, LSD is amazing. And, but I also discovered you can't do it all the time if you actually want to experience the amazing highs. So I only took to marijuana because that was what all my LSD buddies did all the time. And it was like, well, I like LSD. And if these kids are smoking pot all the time when they're not doing LSD, let's do that. And it wasn't even a love connection. It just kind of became a habitual thing. And then eventually over the years, I'd had such, you know, apocalyptically terrifying bad trips that psychedelics became, you know, way too tricky to do except in the very, very right circumstances. And as a result, marijuana became that much more psychedelic and intense because it would kind of take me to those, you know, vistas that I'd had on the more powerful psychedelics. And so it became like, oh, this is enough. Like, weed, weed takes me far out enough, you know, woo. And, you know, it just became a habitual thing over the decades. And I would take breaks, you know, there'd be six months off or nine months off, but like I always went back to real regular smoking. And I started researching it and I learned that just like alcoholics and alcohol, there's 11% of people that are never going to be occasional pot smokers. Like if they have it, they have to have it all the time. They can't just be, oh, that was a fun party. Maybe I'll have it a couple months from now at another party. And I'm one of those people, you know, I just, if I'm going to do it, I'm doing it habitually. And I get along with it very well. I'm a high functioning stoner. Um, it's certainly not difficult to be a DJ and be a pot smoker. It's a lifestyle that works really well because it's like, oh, I've spent all my time listening to music. Smoke a J, listen to music, works great. But the very reliance on it and the very necessity of it, and when your brain is used to receiving a bunch of THC, it organizes itself to be you know, stable with a ton of THC coming in. But then the second you take that out, it's like, I'm not stable anymore. Like I'm agitated, I'm restless, I'm irritated, get me some weed, you know? And as the years have gone on, I've just questioned it more and more. Like, all right, you know, this drug and you get along great, but the few times I would say be traveling in India or someplace where I wasn't getting regular access, I, and, and perhaps Anjali, well, certainly Anjali more, even more so, was very aware of the withdrawal symptoms, you know, the irritability, the grouchiness, the, you know, darkness, depression, whatever. And more than being on, like there's very little about being on marijuana that makes me go, oh, it's so bad, I gotta get off. But the withdrawals have always been so intense that I'm like, hmm, 
if the withdrawal is this bad, is this something I want to be putting into my system all the time, constantly, which is what I've been doing. And so, yeah, I had oral surgery like three weeks ago and, you know, they don't like you to smoke around oral surgery. And so I thought, all right, it's an excuse. I have so little control, self-control these days around it that I'll just use that as the motivating influence. And for me, it's usually only difficult the first 24 hours or so in terms of the, the cravings. And then very quickly I get into the withdrawal phase and I realize, oh, I'm not doing well. I actually think I want to try to get off this because, you know, instead of going back on it, it's like uh, the way I'm feeling makes me think, let's just keep going without it for a while. Mm -hmm. But insomnia is the major side effect of THC withdrawal for me. So, you know, I'm an eight to 10 hour a night sleeper plus naps. I'm a huge proponent of naps, but while withdrawing, I'm sleeping one to five hours a night, usually in three to four sessions. Like I'm rarely sleeping more than an hour, hour and a half in a row. And it's only been in the last couple of days that I've been able to take naps. Because for the first couple of weeks, no matter how tired and exhausted I was, I would lay down and my eyes would close and then I'd be right back up buzzing. And in the last couple of days, I've been able to sleep an hour, an hour and a half during the day. So I'm really, really hopeful that I'll be stabilizing soon. And I'm just, I'm feeling really good about it. You know, I, I make no judgments about anyone and how they choose to spend their life. But I remember when Neil Young quit weed at 67, he was just like, I've been smoking weed my whole life. Like maybe it's time to experience some life where I'm not smoking weed. And so for me, it's like, yeah, I've been doing this so solidly for decades. It's such a part of my identity. I remember a friend of mine was like, I know the world's ending because Steven's quitting weed, you know? Um, but yeah, at this moment, it feels great. You know, even even though the withdrawal period is still intense, it feels great to be making this decision for me right now. And when I DJ this Saturday for the first time in front of a club crowd in 16 months, we'll see how it goes. It'll be very different. That's for sure. That'll be your first non-high DJing in, in years, probably. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's part of the ritual. Yeah, no, absolutely part of the ritual. And you know, memory is like chemical dependent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're stoned when you study for the test, you better take the test high. You know, if you're always drinking when you're studying, you better take the test with a beer or two because that's how our brains work. So I'm always listening to music high. And so then get into the DJ gig and it's like, if I'm high, I'm accessing all those musical memories. But it's harder if I was to like say prep sober and then DJ high or prep high and DJ sober. So for me, it's obvious that the drug is the music when when for me and this is personal statement when it comes to the the edm stuff mm -hmm. that it's pretty obvious to me that you got to be on something to really feel that um because i see what's happening there but if but it's happening outside of me mm -hmm. Right. I see what they're doing with the music, with the EDM. I see the whole, the drop, the whole thing that they do. Um, but, and, and, and every now and then there's one that, that gets me, right. That's just got a nice beat. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm a little more organic. I'm a little more funk. You know what I'm saying? Well, and this is, this is why Anjali and I have been so different than pretty much any other DJ on the scene is that we're very uh, song based mm -hmm. and you know, there are song based DJs that are playing top 40 or playing retro music, playing stuff that people know, but most of the DJs who are playing music that people don't know are playing instrumental electronic genres, you know, that, that are obscure, that are new or, or different. And 
we almost never get booked to play DJ events. We get booked to play with rock bands. So like we have a show coming up at Topaz Farms with Reina Tropical and Black Bell Eagle Scout. And we're so honored to be asked to be on those bills because we don't make music. So the fact that people who do, whose whole lives are dedicated to making music are like, we like what you do as DJs and we want you on our stage. Mm-hmm. Whereas all the people that are playing, they're not hiring us. They're, Cause it's like, we're playing these songs often in, you know, like Punjabi songs, that's a tradition that's hundreds and hundreds of years old. And so it's very different than instrumental electronic tracks. And so people either don't appreciate what we do, it doesn't appeal to them, or they don't see how to slot us. Like a lot of promoters will be like, oh, I like what you do, but you're so different than everyone else. I don't know how to put you on the lineup. So and that's why band, we've... We... If I was a band that had that was uh, rhythm-based, you know, upbeat type of band, I would love to have you guys open for me because you're an energy mm. right you guys bring an energy and you get people moving i mean that's the goal and if i yeah it's it's it would it'd be at well it worked where it worked for the bull party mm. like get everybody open out yeah yeah you guys are the best openers in the world because you you set a mood that is celebratory and it lets everything else fall into that realm, and it's it's pretty amazing. Um, I know I know it's a lot of people are like, well, I don't want to be opener. Mm-hmm. I want to be the closer. I want to be the one that 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 ends the show. But there's value in in creating the opening space. Super value in it. Well, I, I agree with you, and I have a couple things to say about that. One is we are good at it. And so it can become a trap because we'll play different festivals. Um, and we'll always get slotted for the afternoon slot. Cause they're like, Oh, you're the only people that can get everybody out and dancing in the middle of the afternoon. Yeah. But then we'll watch the DJs play at night to 10 times the people and think, yeah, but we could kill that too. You know, like if you think right. we do good in the early afternoon, like imagine yeah. us to the packed crowd at night, but we're too good at the early slot. Um, bookends. You say, Oh yeah, we, we only book bookends. We'll open you and close you. Uh, yeah, no, we've been super fortunate. Like a tribe called Red, uh, who are now going by Hallucination, one of our favorite bands. We open for them four times, you know, at their request often. Um, that just felt amazingly powerful to have, you know, a group of indigenous musicians say, yeah, we want you to, to open up our shows and stuff. Um, and it, yeah, it's a difficult slot. It's a special slot. Our biggest shows so far where we played four different days of Sasquatch's 10 year anniversary in 2011 up in George Washington. And the way we got the gig was we'd done a wedding. And at the wedding, Adam Zacks, the promoter of Sasquatch saw us kind of teaching a dance lesson and getting everyone out and dancing. And he had a dilemma because they had a comedy tent during the day at Sasquatch, but then that tent became the dance tent at night. And so he's like, well, how do I turn it over? You know, how do I get it? Like the people are sitting and listening to comedy, but then how do I get it to all of a sudden become the dance tent? So he sees us and he's like, yeah, we'll do a dance lesson. We'll have these guys kind of do the changeover. And so we were the only artists that played more than once that year. And we played, you know, all four days. And we actually played five sets because they even gave us an extra set one of those days. And the first night, 
they they never had Sasquatch open that many nights, but they were able to book the Foo Fighters the first night. So the Foo Fighters were playing for two and a half hours on the main stage, and they were like, well, we want somebody to play for two and a half hours in the dance tent. Let's get Anjali and the kid. We've already got them up here playing every other day. Let's ask them if they want to do the whole set in the dance tent that night. Mm-hmm. And that was just unbelievable because everybody that wasn't into hearing the Foo Fighters came to see us. And there were 50,000 kids there, and there were a lot of kids that weren't into the Foo Fighters. So. Yeah. Yeah, that was an amazing, amazing experience, and all because we know how to open things up. Because <laughs> yeah, we were you know after us people like Major Laser were playing or Skrillex or whoever, but we were the people that that you know kind of got him in the tent and got him going. Yeah, I don't understand the Skrillex stuff. I've I've listened. <laughs> we Gary, this was funny because we're we're so in our little world. People might think, oh, as DJs, you know all the latest popular electronic music. It's like, oh hell no. Like we're deep down in our little rabbit holes. We don't play the mainstream stuff that everyone else is listening to unless we're forced to in a corporate environment or whatever. And so I had no idea that Skrillex was anybody. I mean, I knew he existed, but I, you know, didn't appeal to me in the slightest. And so then we're watching all these kids, you know, against the fences, like the Beatles, like all crying, going Skrillex, Skrillex. Like he'd be walking back and forth the backstage area and literally thousands of kids are just like screaming and crying and reaching out for him. And that taught me the, I was like, okay, all right. The kids are into Skrillex. Yeah, they are. I mean, mean, they were, they were not uh, 10 years ago. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't that funny how it all just seems new and it's, it's already old. But I got I to gotta shout Skrillex out because he has the number one Latin song in the world right now because he hooked up with the Colombian superstar J Balvin. And so they just released a brand new song called Into Ghetto, um, right. which is, yeah, it's a very, very catchy track. And so um, Skrillex is apparently reinventing himself as a pop Latin artist. I don't know, but it's, it's, it's fun based on a major sample, but still fun. Can't go wrong with that. I mean, <laughs> look at David Byrne. Yeah, yeah, that kept, yeah, Latin music kept him going for a long time there. You know? Yeah. I, you know, that's oh, I was talking about, you know, earlier stuff that you kind of get dive into uh, again. And I've been diving mm. into David Byrne a lot lately. Mm. I just love that his rhythms, his rhythms are just amazing. He got good musicians to play the rhythms. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. They're just so good. They're just upbeat. It's got to keep you going throughout the day. So what are the uh, different dances that Anjali teaches? Good question. Um, so she definitely teaches Bhangra, you know, Punjabi folk dance, uh, certainly her version, as she always says, you know, this is my version of Punjabi folk dance. Because um, she's not Punjabi, like her family is um, from a different part of India, but she just, she studied different forms of Indian classical dance when she was younger. And it wasn't until she started dancing Bhangra that she thought, oh, this is my dance. Like, I, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. Like, this is the dance I've always been meant to dance. And She also teaches Bollywood, and Bollywood is a very amorphous term because anything that the Hindi film language, sorry, anything that the Hindi language film industry based in Mumbai puts out is Bollywood, like just by the fact that they put it out. So any dance in a Bollywood movie is Bollywood dance. And since the 90s, that's meant a lot of like Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson aping, you know. Um, So there's an Indian classical influence to Bollywood, but then there's all sorts of pop influences and they're just grabbing from anywhere and she teaches a more classically informed style uh the north indian classical dance of kathak so yeah those are the dances she teaches at the viscount dance studio and yeah i don't have anything to do with the dance teaching world that's not where my gifts lie but she's been doing it for i don't eight years or more now uh, at this point separate from our nights because she started teaching at our nights 
And then the dance studio is like, we want you to, you know, to be teaching just the classes and not just a little bit at the start of a dance party, you know, so. You can't help but feel joyful when, when you're doing those dances and mm -hmm. even more joyful when you look at Anjali's face. Yes, she, she radiates joy, true story. Radiance, yes. It's Very so, true. So wonderful. Oh, wow. So this is a big journey. I mean, you, you take on some big journeys skating you know in your 50s and quitting pot i'm sure these are the least of the journeys ahead of us i'm very sure yeah it's it's we're at a point in time where it's it's you know they said the curse of living in interesting times it's just going to be getting way too interesting for all of us very yeah yeah having experienced our hundred and first 116 degree day and the last summer i spent the summer at the molala river valley and I measure my summers by how often I get a dip in my favorite rivers, which used to be the Washougal and the Lewis, both in Washington. And I'd, I'd experienced the Molala before, but not as deep as I went last summer. And sort of our COVID summer was spent just exploring deeper and deeper in that river valley up until the day that it burnt down. Like we were there swimming when all of a sudden there was just this blast of hot, smoky air hit us and we just ran for the car and drove as fast as we could. And now that area is all torched. You know, I hope to spend the rest of my life going to that river valley every summer. You can't even get up there now. They have the whole thing fenced off through logging every last square inch of it. You know, who knows when they'll even let you go up to just see the, the charred landscape. But those aspects of our changing future are terrifying, to be honest. Yeah, it is. And, you know, we watched that fire from Sandy because we had to leave Silverton because the fire, yeah. it was 14 miles away but it had moved 60 miles the night before and luckily had kind of stalled. Wow. So we were like, oh, well, that could be here in an hour. And so we we left, went to Salem. It was really bad there because it was the firestorm was coming down the mountain. It was right there. The sky was an un, unbelievable red. I, yeah, there's no red quite like it. Mm. Um, yeah, and we were watching that fire, you know, because that fire started like a day afterwards um, in the Malala River. And, you know, so we're watching that start up and we're like, holy crap. But luckily, you know, we're sitting in Sandy, really close to the mountain. Um, and you can feel the wind coming across the gorge, you know, coming in and pushing around the mountain, pushing south. So it was like, wow, at least it's not coming, you know, towards the mountain. Yeah, it's it's devastating. Ice storms and fires and, you know, the world has, has dramatically shifted. Um, and the systems that we took for granted, the little microecologies where things grew here, they're not going to grow there anymore. And they're going to grow, some things are going to end up growing in other places, but some things are just not going to grow anymore. Well, this is the problem we have just with our yard, because we've tried to plant a bunch of natives and a bunch of things that are going to take less maintenance, whatever. But now we're having, you know, it used to be you wouldn't even have to think about watering your garden until August in Portland because it'd be raining so much through July. And now we're watering in May, you know, trying to keep the garden alive. And as we're struggling to keep natives alive, and I say that in quotes because it's like our, they were native to what our, you know, ecosystem was. But we're changing so much that I keep saying, I guess we need to start planting succulents, you know? I mean, if we're moving into a permanent drought zone, 
Yeah, I always assumed we'd be wet here. More of a tropical. Mm. I think we'll end up being more of a tropical as the North Sea's warm. Uh, but I also think that our air is going to get really still. And mm -hmm. that's, that's going to be the, the hardest thing to bear. I mean, well, this summer, you know, we have different outdoor shows planned. And I think to myself, maybe, or maybe we're going to be taped in that night or that week or that month because of all the fires, because the smoke will be so thick. And of all the different COVIDs I experienced, there was the COVID when we were locked down and you weren't even allowed to be on the roads and you weren't allowed to be driving unless you were a essential worker. That was a part of the COVID experience where if we were even just trying to go to a different neighborhood to walk, we were afraid that we'd get pulled over like, where are you going? What are you doing? Then there was, um, you know, the COVID of the firestorms where it was like, oh, you can't even go out into your yard. Like you have to be taped into your house. And, and Anjali has, uh, you know, all sorts of breathing issues. So it was very serious for us in terms of having to maintain a clean air and stuff. And then you know, when we, we got stuck in six days of no power in the ice storm. And so then there was COVID with no power and being frozen in. And I threw my back out at the same time. So it was the COVID of no power frozen in and my back out. So Gosh. so many different phases. And I, I don't think we're post pandemic at all. I mean, we have we're following too closely what's happening with our family and friends in India. And the, the variants, there's more than just the Delta variant, there's variant after variant, some are just more successful than others. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, maybe everything's like a bad dream that we just woke up from. But when you have 30 to 40% of people unvaccinated, um, and that's just here, but then you go to India where it's, you know, there's only a few percentage people that are double vaxxed. And so it's just this breeding ground for mutation after mutation. And, you know, I'd love yeah. to think that it's all sunny skies from here on out, but I don't think that's realistic. In the gratitude room, we're, uh, we have a lot of Indian friends mm. that come through and several of them have lost family and, uh, the teachers, you know, because they're connected to whole families, lots of families. And I have several teachers that come on there. And uh, they're, they're, they're particularly hurt, it seems, you know. Um, and, and they're, you know, they just don't have the resources. You know, you can't get away if there's no place to get away to if you're living you know, several people in a household and it normally works because everybody's out doing things and then they come home to sleep. Um, but now they've all got to be in the same space. I don't know how that works. There's far less ability to, to socially distance in the urban areas. Um, you have a government in India that just felt like it'll all be fine. You know, do yoga, it'll all be fine. You've got the incredible greed of the West where we're refusing to release the patent restrictions. We're hoarding vaccines. We were throwing 4,000, four or 5,000 vaccines a day away in Oregon because our own population isn't interested in getting vaxxed anymore. And then meanwhile, they're desperate for the vaccines in India. So there's just incredible amounts of self-centered greed in the West where our refusal to look behind our own backyard. Like, oh, we're fine. We're, we're at 70%. Who cares about the rest of the world? And that's going to come back and nail us hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, so much a bummer. Well, and I, you know, I say all this while maintaining a, a very optimistic attitude. I like to be as realistic as possible about the depths of our problems before trying to solve them. I don't think it's helpful to think, oh, I'm going to solve things without really grasping just the situation we're in. Yeah. So I don't, I don't like to, you know, go over all sorts of negative things to like 
get to a place of, oh, we can't do anything. It's more like this problem is serious and it requires our attention. Yeah. And a real change in, in our in our ways. It is, it is kind of interesting getting that glimpsed into first world, second world, third world realities, you know, uh, just through people that I've that I've met and and seeing that so it's been really sad because I feel finally free after all of this time because you know I am vaccinated but mm. then again you're right like you say there's variants so do I need to start getting scared again I don't know the fear is not going to help anyone well I'm not going to get scared but I'm gonna yeah. do I have to start taking all the precautions again yeah. We have our friend, our first friend in Portland, double backs, just caught COVID. Like, I don't know that it's been ID'd as Delta, but that's my thought, you know, they're. Yeah. Now the people who have caught COVID who've been vaxxed have all done pretty well. And some have shown very few symptoms even. We can hope for the best. Yeah. Yeah. That's. I'd certainly rather take on a variant double vax than not. That's for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. definitely. I mean, I, I lived in Egypt for two years as a child. Mm -hmm. My father was in medical school during the Vietnam War. So the government said, hey, you stay there in medical school. And when you're done, we're going to take you and your family for two years. So they gave him a list of countries. And he looked through them and he's like, I've heard of the pyramids. We'll go to Cairo. So we went to Cairo for two years. I was uh, I turned five and six there. I went to kindergarten and first grade. And we had to get shot in the butt so many times for so many weeks before we went to Egypt. I mean, I just I mean, I was. You know, yeah, four years old at the time, and I, you know, my memories go back to at least two years old. I have, you know, very, very uh, deep memories. But you know, I just remember just getting shot in the butt over and over. We all just kind of like leaned over a bench, and it was just like this. It wasn't just one or two; it was like a series, and then it was a series of boosters too. So it just felt like we were going there every week for a while, and we'd get like ice cream on the other end of it. That was like the reward for getting vaxxed. So to me, the idea that you need all these vaccinations to survive is just been part of my life. And so it's really interesting for me to encounter people who are like, oh no, I'm not going to get vaxxed. Like, no, no. And it's like, all right, take your chances. But like when I go to India, I'm not messing around. I get vaxxed for all sorts of things because like I don't need, you know, Japanese yeah. encephalitis or whatever. No, I'm good. Yeah, so. no kidding. Yeah, no, there's some weird stuff running around just in mosquitoes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, I remember the, uh, in the, well, in the Marines, it was like every week, mm -hmm. it like you were going through, you know, cattle call of of needles but i remember before yeah, we went call to needles. yeah before we went to the philippines we had to get some shots for different other diseases that are there um and then take a lot of uh, quinine big old round quinine pills i've been afraid to take quinine did you hallucinate it all on quinine no i don't know i've been hallucinating my whole life i think so i'm not sure when i'm hallucinating or not I think I'm confusing quinine with a different malaria medication because I've, I've avoided the malaria meds because of the intense side effects. So I, I might not be remembering which is which. I know some of them give you really intense hallucinations. I don't know. They, they didn't really, you know, they just give you pills and treat you like as if in the Marines and there's no side effects acknowledged. <laughs> and so we just took stuff and, you know, and, and went where they told us. Yeah. But yeah, I remember taking those big old honkers and because malaria is a bad, bad deal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Somebody died from that on, on a film once. It was like, oh, my goodness. Not dying, but they were they were in the process. It was in the flies and they were sleeping like 24 hours a day. And yeah, sleeping sickness. And, and not, you know, not every uh, form of malaria is going to kill you. It's very interesting talking to my Indian family and friends 
in India about it because they'll be like, oh, I've had malaria five times. You know, like, oh yeah, no, I get malaria all the time, whatever. Like there's a much more, it's like the flu there. So there's a much more casual attitude towards it. Whereas coming from the West, it's like, oh my God, let's not get malaria. We'll die. Well, it can kill you. You absolutely can. You absolutely can. But it's not considered that serious by the people that are suffering from it all the time. It's like, oh, malaria. Yeah. That that happened to me a couple of times, whatever. Right. Well, they got lots of mosquitoes and too many people. So they're like, yeah, maybe I die. Become less of a burden. Well, so because malaria medication often involves a great expense, a great number of side effects, and you have to be doing it for a long period of time, like most of the meds you have to do for an extended period of time, I, as much as I'll get all sorts of vaccinations before going to India, I've never messed with the malaria meds. And so I'll just think, I'll just avoid mosquitoes, right? But you haven't even left the airport yet. You haven't even stepped outside and the mosquitoes are in the airport biting you. You know, and then of course, the second you step out and you're trying to catch your cab, you're getting bit and you're getting bit in your, you're getting bit everywhere. So the yeah. idea that you can avoid mosquito bites in India is ridiculous. So they, they the, the mosquitoes that enjoy an international fair go to the airport. Oh yeah, buffet, like, oh, international buffet. From all over the world, it's so delicious. Tasty blood of all stripes, absolutely. <laughs> Freaking, oh, those guys. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad that where we live, in my house anyways, we don't get them. And I think mm -hmm. it has to do with the creek and the fact that the water is always moving and there's always a breeze. Because mm -hmm. I'll just go over to somebody's house that's, you know, a mile away and there will be mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. You're very blessed to be where you are yeah. if you can avoid the mosquitoes. Our backyard is thick with them. And when I used to go out outdoors with my father when I was a kid, you know, camping or, or fishing or whatever, he would get savaged and I wouldn't get touched. And I'd be like, oh, you know, I'm good. Like they just like you. Well, what I learned when I started going out with my friends into the woods is I was only the second tastiest human on earth. So if I was with my dad, I was safe. But if I was with anyone else, I was the guy that all the mosquitoes were on. And so in our in our backyard, unfortunately, there are plenty of mosquitoes and I'm usually suffering most of the bites for sure. Yeah, I, there's a big barn across the way that has a lot of bats. Oh, okay. Yeah, they'll and take care of it. Swallows, a lot of swallows around here. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we're pretty lucky on, on the old mosquito thing. I say that and today will be the day, right? Hope not. Yeah, I'm not a fan of them. Yeah, I wonder if they play a crucial role in the ecology. I've never researched it, but... Yeah, I'm not the bites. I'm mm -hmm. thinking they could go away. <laughs> And then we learn what actual role they played. They held it all together. It was the mosquitoes. Well, fish eat a lot of mosquitoes. Uh, okay. I didn't yeah. know that. You know, the, the, the little water, it'll jump out. That's what they're eating. Just mm. keep Fascinating. Yeah, I didn't know that. I don't think there's enough of them. I think a frog will eat a mosquito if it flies around them. Yeah, I can't say I've looked too much into mosquitoes. Yeah. They've looked into me. <laughs> Looked into your soul. Yes, they have. They've taken pieces of my soul, <laughs> pieces of theirs embedded in my body. Yeah. So the uh, most amazing night for you guys, have you had one where it was just like, wow, that was magical? Or do they all kind of feel that way? I mean, certainly from the beginning, the magic was there. Absolutely. Um because we had, we first, I, you know, un, I've been DJing for several years doing house parties in the late 90s after my, my stint on KWVA in Eugene. And 
Anjali attended some of the parties because we were both um, working at Powell's Books. And at the time we were organizing as ILWU Local 5, which the workers at Powell's Books are still represented by ILWU Local 5. And so we had solidarity parties where it would be like, hey, let's get all the union activists together and we're going to dance and we're going to party. And Anjali was so unimpressed, you know, with us boy DJs. It was all boys, you know, and she was just like, the music's boring, you're boring, you know. But she realized, oh, maybe this guy will teach me, you know. So she came up to me at work one day. It was like, uh, could you teach me how to DJ? And I'm like, well, yeah, of course, you know, I'll totally teach you how to DJ. And then a, a union activist who was leaving town and also had her birthday where there was a party that I'd been invited to DJ. And I thought about it and I'm like, you know what, I really think that this powerful woman union organizer would really appreciate a woman DJ on the lineup and, you know, not just me. So I'll, I'll say, hey, Anjali, why don't you come DJ this Saturday? Because there's a idea that you practice DJing in your room, you know, like certain DJs will be like, you're not allowed to play in front of people until you've practiced for two years in your bedroom. That does not help you DJ in front of people. Okay, right. it might help you with some technical aspects of your performance. But DJing is dealing with the psychology of a crowd and manipulating the psychology of a crowd. You don't learn any of that in your bedroom, you know? And so some people are embarrassed to go out with limited uh, technical skills in front of a crowd. We've been doing it for decades. Uh, when we started out, there was such a demand for turntablists and scratch DJs. And we're just like, the way I envision it is 50 sock hop DJs. I'm like, we just play the song and then play the song and then play the song. And they're like, we're not doing anything tricky. And so my attitude wasn't, oh, she's going to have to spend a bunch of time like learning in the basement. It was like, oh, you want to learn this Saturday in front of a crowd at a house party? You're going to learn, you know? And so she comes up to the party with her music. And I'd already been DJing for a while, you know, in the early part, because I, I love back then, I would love to just like the first moment somebody would arrive at the party, I'd want to already be DJing and I'd want to go all night. You know, I'd want to play eight or nine hours. I was just how I loved it. I was so selfish about it. Like friends of mine would be like, hey, is in the room for me? I'm like, no, I only have nine hours. Uh, but, but Anjali, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You know, we'll, we'll give you a chance here. And so I had to go to the bathroom because I'd already been DJing for a while, right? And so she shows up and I'm like, hey, here's the crossfader. Here's the upfader. You know, here's this, here's that. Are you okay? Because I got to go to the bathroom. And she's like, yeah. I go to the bathroom. And this is early at the party. Nobody's been dancing. This is just like the mingling part, right? I come back, the whole room is packed and everybody's dancing. Nice. True story, true story, dancing. And I'm just looking at her like, that's not how it's supposed to work, you know? And, <laughs> and you know, she just continued to blow me away all night. And every other, I had, a, I had other, you know, house party, as much as I was selfish, I did have other house party DJ partners back then. And we all had a great deal of overlap in our music. You know, we've been raised on similar funk bands or similar, you know, hip hop bands or whatever. And she was coming from another world. You know, in addition to the Indian music she was playing, she was playing lots of Britpop and glam and 60s and just stuff that, you know, I knew some of what she was playing, but not really. Like most of what she was playing, I was like, what's this? What's this? What's this? And I was most excited about the Indian music, you know, because I collected what was called Asian Underground in the 90s, which was cl classically Indian influenced electronica from England. And so I had that material, Talvin Singh, Bad Martian Shri, State of Bengal, those sorts of artists. But she was playing Bollywood stuff and Bhangra stuff where I was like, I don't know this at all, you know? And after we started playing together, people would be so excited, like in a way that, you know, kind of like, wow, that last party was so great. And I realized, oh, there's something special about playing with Anjali, you know? Because I've been DJing for a while and I've been DJing with different people and people liked me and they liked my music, but I sensed the excitement that she brought. And 
I'd been, I was invited to start playing at the Blackbird, um, legendary, you know, kind of punk bar over on Sandy, which has been numerous places since I was doing every Tuesday night there. And it was like, I invited her on like, Hey, Anjali, like come play this. And I'm trying to think about, it. oh, and so like right away, I'd been playing for months there and very few people, you know, we worked with 400 coworkers at Powell's and very few of them would come to see me. And the first day that she played with me, the place is packed with all our coworkers. And I'm like, oh, they want to see her. Like, that's who they want to see DJ, you know? So I thought I'm going to coat, you know, ride the coattails of this excitement as long as possible. So the magic was there from the beginning. But if I think about some of the most magical times, what comes to my mind is the early days of Tropital. So we started, we're celebrating 19 years of our Andaz party on July 10th. That was our Bunger and Bollywood party. When we started playing together in 2000, we would just play grab bag sets where there'd be Indian music and Latin music, but also, you know, hip hop and funk and soul. And, you know, she'd be playing Britpop and girl groups and whatever. And we kind of had this very eclectic sound for the first couple of years. But more and more people would be like, we just want to hear the Indian music. I'm like, why don't you just play like the Indian music? And so eventually through different connections, we uh, reached out to Lola's room and we're like, hey, Lola's room, it's July of 2002. We want to throw a dedicated Bunger and Bollywood party. Well, a writer at the Willamette Week had written us up around that time. And so I was able to kind of show the article, like, look, we do this Indian music thing here. We're in the Willamette Week. And so that was enough of a, okay, we'll try your party out, you know? And that first party was nearly sold out, like 300 people. We were just shy of selling out. And the next party was the same thing. So, you know, the excitement was always there. And then in 2003, uh, we reached out to Holocene, which was a new club at the time. They'd only been open for six months. And we were like, hey, we want to do an international night. Now we would call it global bass, but that word didn't even exist back then. But we knew it wasn't world music. Like we, we were very opposed to the term world music. It's like, no, we're playing bang and beats. We're not playing, you know, what's traditionally associated you know, with world music. And that night, bang, you know, the first night was the day after Halloween and it didn't go very well because everyone was partied out from Halloween. But the next month, or actually it was only, we were doing every two weeks back then, there were 400 people there. And then every party was packed. And so there was always this magic. But then we stayed at Holocene for 10 years. And as we stayed with the club, the club changed direction. They started having more and more mainstream nights, nights where it would just all be top 40 music or all be, you know, popular hip hop music or popular retro music. And we were the oddballs because we were the only people that played all music that wasn't in English that most people had never heard. And as they got more and more mainstream and more and more popular, we started to look less and less uh, like a good um, investment, you know, it was like, well, if we can get 600 people to listen to retro hip hop on a Saturday night, like, why do we want 400 people listening to weird international music, you know? Right. So even though we had a very successful party, it was not on the same level as their more and more mainstream nights. So in 2013, they sort of forced a rebranding on us because we'd done a night called Atlas, which was literally about, you know, international music from wherever. And they were like, we want something way more focused. And so we were like, well, okay, we've always wanted to do, we've had this concept for 10 years. We want to do a night that's a Desi Latino sound clash where we specifically focus on the South Asian music and the Latin music and put those together. And they were like, okay, that sounds good. And so we did a couple shows there and they were like, you know what? We don't really think people care. We don't think people are that interested. And so they dropped us after 10 years and we were like, all right, well, we're really into this concept. We think there's a lot of excitement behind these, these parties we've been throwing. So we reached out to the Goodfoot and the Goodfoot we have been in touch with the good foot over the years and they're like you know we have our soul night on fridays where we have our soul djs but other than that we're a live music venue 
And that's what they'd always tell us, you know, like, yeah, maybe there's a weekday for you, but we can't give you a weekend. And we'd long since discovered that our crowd is like a Friday and especially a Saturday night crowd. Our crowd's not that we go out and dance on Monday nights. This is not our crowd. No. So they gave us a Saturday and it was packed and we've been there for seven years, you know, like it would have been an eight year anniversary uh, in May that we missed because of COVID. But um, when I think about the most magical nights, I think about those early tropical nights at the Goodfoot because we'd been playing at these very hipster clubs like Holocene or like Roture at the time. It was interesting the way I pronounced that Roture. Um, We've been playing these very hipster clubs where everyone's too cool. Now our crowd wasn't, you know, our crowd would show up and dance, but the general vibe of the, of the clubs were kind of like, we're too cool. And the good foot, that's not the vibe of the good foot, right? The vibe of the good foot is we're here to get down and get sweaty. And so we united our crowd and the good foot crowd. And it was just energy level off the roof, you know, people just screaming and cheering and everyone just, it was just so wild. I mean, people were stage diving, not stage diving, crowd surfing on the dance floor at the good foot. Well, those ceilings are very low and those are yeah. low ceilings, but people were so feeling it was like, I got to get up above the crowd. If they put me up there, you know, like, let me scrape the rafters or whatever. And so those, those first several were so unbelievably magical that as, as the party has stayed as wild and crazy as ever, at least pre pandemic, there was always a sense of like, wow, can we ever really recapture that though? You know what I mean? Because there's this, the first right. times when something is just so good. But that party has stayed, you know, super solid for us pre-pandemic. And inshallah, we're going back to the good foot in mid-August, you know, assuming that things are safe to do so. Mateo played his, he, he did the disco sets there. Oh, yeah. Okay. I haven't seen Mateo there, but yeah, I, absolutely. I, I don't know. I see pictures of him from somewhere. I think he's in Mexico. I have not yet. I, Montel Spinoza, DJ Montel Spinoza. I have not yeah heard anything from him since pandemic but i would not be surprised if he wasn't gallivanting around the world and picking up good records wherever he was yeah yeah it looks like he's he's taking he takes cool pictures weird bizarre shit yeah i haven't seen him in a while um i don't think he's in portland though hmm. yeah i wouldn't know because we've stayed locked down for 16 months i mean we didn't go to the store we didn't go anywhere you know we've just been we were live streaming on our saturday nights and otherwise just staying locked down so you know, we have kind of our close friends that we've stayed in touch with and family. But then outside of that, there's a lot of unknowns as to who's where and how they're doing, you know. Interpersonally, do you think you grew? Oh, massively, massively. So I have always had a very individualist attitude. As a child, I didn't really respect the adults around me. I didn't think they were very intelligent. And I didn't have any elders I looked up to. Uh, I noticed that you had you know, sent some some questions, you know, before this to kind of get me in, in the mindset. And you're asking about my grandparents and like my parents considered their parents so toxic that a lot of our childhood was spent moving places so they couldn't have an influence in our life. So instead of having elders I looked up and respected to, it was more like really fucked up damaged people that would just spread their damage, you know? Um, so I developed a closer relationship with Anjali's grandmother in India than I have with any of my, you know, grandparents. Um, rest in peace. She died at 93 recently. Um, and so I just, I didn't, you know, I grew up thinking, wow, you people are dumb. You know, I, there were things I liked, like art things, comic books, you know, um, role-playing games or different things I was drawn to, but I mainly received judgment and derision from the adults. 
Why are you reading those comic books? Why do you play so much D&D? We already talked about how I wasn't allowed to listen to music, right? So all the things that to me seemed the most filled with joy and love in this world, I was forbidden from touching or, or was my relationships with them were heavily criticized or sens you know, censured. So I, this was leading somewhere though. Lack of, oh, growing up as an individual. Where did the, where did this question start? This is the first time I lost it my started is, is basically part of your self-discovery through. Ah, uh, uh, did I learn anything? Right. So, so I, I, I came up feeling very individualistic because it was like, well, I don't relate to the people in the society around me. And, you know, like my fellow kids, I was tormented. I was called weird Steve, you know, like I, from childhood, you know, I was like the oddball weirdo kid, like, oh, what's his problem? So it wasn't like I, you know, I had some isolated friends of other nerds and stuff, but I was very much feeling like I don't identify with anyone. I'm on my own in this world. Pandemic hits and I realize I have no income. I have a pile of bills. There's no hope of income, you know, for the infinite future. I could have just gone and worked at, you know, an Amazon warehouse or something. But Anjali has, like I mentioned earlier, breathing difficulties. So she was so concerned about her health that I wasn't going to go anywhere to make a minimum wage job to risk her health. So I was forced into the position of being like, I need to beg. Like I need to beg in public and say, can anyone help me? Because I can't pay my bills. I can't, you know, stay in my house and I have no income. And our 20 years of dedication to what we do has never made us money. We've, you know, there was there every couple of years, I'll make a thousand dollars or so over the poverty line, federal poverty line, just enough to kick me off the Oregon health plan, you know, which is not helpful. Better to make a thousand or two thousand dollars less and still be able to stay on the Oregon health plan. So it's, you know, we, we barely survive. And then you go into pandemic and there's no nest egg, you know, there's no savings, there's nothing. So I literally had to get on my hands and knees in public and beg and say, can anyone help me survive? You know, and people came forward. Lots of people came forward. Bless your souls. Lots of people came forward over and over, you know, and then people started saying, we're just going to become like your patrons. Like, you know, we're just going to give you a certain amount of money so that you can support yourself every month. It took me five months to get on unemployment. The Oregon system was so screwed up with their 1970s computers, you know, right. they've shut me off four times since then for no reason other than that their system is so screwed up. Yeah. So if I didn't have, you know, the help of other people, I wouldn't be here today. And that so shifted my attitude because I so felt like nobody cares about me. Nobody loves me. You know, I'm all alone in this world. It's just me versus the world. And certainly Unjali and I versus the world, but I was just raised with that, you know, I'm all alone kind of attitude. And when people start working and then turning their paychecks over to you so you can survive, you can't have that selfish attitude anymore. You can't think, oh, it's just me alone. It's like, no, you have a network of people that care about you and love you and support you. And that changed everything because I've, you know, I was a hugely depressed kid from the age of like 13 to 18. And around 18, I decided I'm not going to invest actually it was towards the end of my 17th year, but I realized I'm not going to invest my energy in this anymore because I dove into it. It wasn't just that I was depressed. I mean, I would just dive. I wanted to go all the way down, you know, just be as depressed as possible all the time. And now when I even think about getting depressed, it's like, really? Like you're going to get depressed when you have all these people that are literally working for you to keep you housed and fed, you know? And so, yeah, talk about spiritual growth. I just had to realize, okay, you you perform a role in the community you perform a role in the world there are people that appreciate you for it they're going to make sure you're there to do it and you need to do it to the best of your ability yeah it's a massive truth we are all 
connected. It's all connected. And when all the systems shut down like they did, mm. you recognize that there are systems at play that maintain our existence that we have very little to do with. And, you know, it's, it's nice to have respect for those. And sometimes we have to be pushed down, you know, enough so that we have to reach up to grab those things so that we can find respect for the connection. Mm. Cause it is, it is the one thing that will save us is people understanding that, that we are. Yeah, there's no way we're getting out of our current scenario alive without all working together. There's no individual that can do anything to save the, you know, the apocalypses that are coming. That's correct. That is correct. Wow. Well, this has been a very, very good conversation. I've loved talking with you, Mr. Pepper. Yeah, this has been excellent. We have to catch up at the snake skate park again sometime. We shall. And, you know, next time I'll come uh, with some pads. Oh, yeah. I like the sound of that. Board. I, I think I got a board around still. I, I thought I saw one the other day. I look at them and I'm like, and it's a short board. So I'm like, eh, I'm not, I don't know that I want to get on you. Mm. Not without pads for sure. Because yeah. um, lately over the years, it's just been longboarding and, and that's a blast. I, I don't have any experience with longboarding. That's a part of skateboarding that I don't know. But I got on a really soft wheeled board the other day at the skate park, somebody else's board. And I've been on hard wheels forever. And I've all of a sudden on these like soft wheels, just rolling and just feeling okay. that. And I'm like, okay, I got to get a soft wheeled little street cruiser, you know. Get yourself a long cruiser, man. And, you know, even sidewalks don't don't pop you, you know. Instead of you yeah, know. I haven't been I haven't been on soft wheels since the eighties probably. And so it was it was revelatory because it's such a cushiony cloud feeling compared to what I'm used to, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you riding them rocks. Riding them <laughs> rocks, bro. True story. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I I I I wish nothing but the best for both of you. Um and I same to you and your family. Yeah, and I'm hoping that all of the it, it, you've got a couple festivals. I hope that you get uh, you get up and, and, and doing that thing. I want to pin you guys in for the bull party uh, next year. We're going to be doing it up in the mountains. You described that to me and it sounded amazing. And I described it to Anjali and she said, that sounds amazing. And she sounded very interested. So, yeah. Yeah. And what we do up there is we just throw up a pot, you know, for people to donate. It's not typically that great, but. But the sound, the setting and everything sounds incredible. Oh, so you guys, you fall in love with the people that are there mm -hmm. too. Oh, beautiful. All right. So I'm going to give my crowd some love right now. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to the Garland Pepper Presents podcast. My my guest today is Stephen Strasbaugh. And, and guess what? They are back in business. DJ and Jolly and the Incredible Kid. They are going to be doing shows in Portland uh, when, when, the, when it gets fully clear. And uh, they're going to be doing a couple festivals this summer. So we're going to have Steve uh, fill us in on those again before we're done here. A uh, few bits of business. I do have a garlandpepper.com page now. And really, the only thing I want you to do on that page is to go there and um, subscribe. So uh, there are subscriptions for every type of device or uh, application you have. So if you listen on Amazon, you listen on Google, you listen on Apple Podcasts, you listen on Spotify, 
All of the links are there for you to be able to subscribe to Garland Pepper. So if you want to subscribe, that's the easiest way. Go to garlandpepper.com. At some point, we're going to have a little more there. But right now, I've just got it to where I want it to be. And I'm going to sit with that for a while because this web stuff about broke my brain. And so we, we, we had a really big and then we dialed it way back down. And now it's just about where I want it until I get to the, uh, my next initiative. And then I will add something to it. Right now, GarlandPepper.com for subscriptions. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Steve. And Steve is going to tell us what they have coming up with DJ and Jolly and the, the incredible kid. Well, rather than get any details wrong, I would just say you can head to AnjaliAndTheKid.com. A-N-J-A-L-I and the kid.com. We'll list all our shows there. You can sign up for our email list there if you want to get email notifications about what we're up to. And... We're on, you know, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We'll post about all our stuff there. So you can find Anjali and the Kid or the Incredible Kid. Either we're both up there on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. But yeah, we're doing, I don't know when this is airing, but July 10th, we're celebrating the 19th anniversary of our Andaz party at the Star Theater. July 17th, we're doing a show at Berrydale. Oh, I'm not allowed to announce that. Maybe post-COVID, I'm allowed to announce it. I don't know. We're doing a Parks and Rec gig at Berrydale Park. And we're doing the show that's sold out with Raina Tropical and Black Belt Eagle Scout. So I don't want to say anything about that because it'll just hurt your feelings. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, other than that, yeah, we're hopefully back to the good foot August 14th for the return of our Tropical Desi Latino Sound Clash party. We're working on, and I don't even know, is it our 19th Bollywood Horror Halloween party? We're working on that. And it's our 21-year anniversary on New Year's Eve because our very first public show together was uh, December, well, December 31st, New Year's Eve, 2000 at the Medicine Hat on Alberta. And so we're going to have our 21-year anniversary New Year's Eve party somewhere. You know, we're working on a couple really big venues. We'll see what pans out. But yeah, we'd always love to see you. Feel free to come up and say hi in the club. Love to meet people. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, I would definitely say hi. And I would super appreciate I, you know, I definitely that. got to get up there. I've been thinking about it for years. It's one of those things. It's like, oh, I live in Silverton. I got to go all the way to Portland, which isn't that far. But it just feels like a whole thing. And typically when we go up for Portland, it's going to be an all, a late night thing. So we'll need to get a room typically is what we have to do. So, um, But we're going to get up there. Tammy and I are going to get up there. Maybe I'll just uh, get a girlfriend that wants to come with me. And she has to be approved by Tammy. And, and it's, she's never approved one yet. So probably not going to bring a girlfriend. Um yeah so maybe i'll just show up i go to dinner by myself sometimes i don't you know doesn't matter to me i you know i'm one of those people that i'll do anything alone it's like oh you know some people are like i don't want to eat out unless i'm with somebody else i don't want to go to a movie unless i'm with somebody else my whole life everything i've wanted to do nobody else has been interested in and so it's like i'm not gonna not do it yeah I'm, i want to do it so you know yeah Ain't nothing to it but to do it <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. This Great talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. Fantastic. Thank you all, all you listeners. Uh, love your others and love yourself first because you ain't going to love others unless you love yourself first. So get on to it and do it. Love yourself. This is Garland Pepper. I'm out.